0: You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Have you ever imagined just leaving everything in your life behind, to move to a tropical paradise. This week's podcast guest did just that when she moved to Costa Rica 20 years ago. Dagmar Springberg is a 500 hour ERIT and she's the founder of Montezuma Yoga in Costa Rica. While growing up in Germany, all she could envision for herself was a life of sunshine and palm trees. After 20 years of soul searching and many detours that led her to explore city life in Los Angeles and New York, she eventually found her dream life by the beach in the lush and tropical nature of Costa Rica. Dagmar believes that everybody can live their dreams and that our work is to become clear and open to receive the gifts of our intuition. Dagmar leads international retreats, teaches yoga online, and her YouTube videos are very popular with over 1 million views. Her signature mentorship program, Spark Your Life, has helped women from all over the world cultivate their intuition and live a more authentic life. I think you'll love hearing about Dagmar's story of following her intuition into the jungles of Costa Rica and also relate to her struggle to find her voice as a new yoga teacher. Let's jump into the conversation and I will see you on the other side. Welcome to the podcast, Dagmar.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited and would love to start by hearing a bit about your early journey with yoga. When did you first start practicing and why did you decide to become a teacher?
1: Well, I think life somehow decided that a little bit for me. I um I left Germany when I turned 30 and um somehow ended up living in Los Angeles and that was like in 1996 and it was the beginning of yoga. I've never done yoga before in Germany, and of course um, arriving in LA, I was a little bit lost. I kind of changed my life. I didn't really know where to go from there and my friend was like let's go to yoga and you know everybody was going to yoga in LA in those days and I went to yoga and pretty soon fell in love with yoga because it was so much more than a physical practice and it was really like um, a very inspiring philosophy to me and I was very lucky to have an amazing teacher from the beginning who really shared stories and really shared so much about the idea and the philosophy. And um, I always say she, she kind of showed me how to find beauty again in life. And that's how the yoga journey started. And then I was doing a lot of yoga and then I moved to New York. And in New York, it was very easy to find good yoga. So I was going to yoga like every day. And um, when I finally decided to move to Costa Rica, I had the idea of organizing yoga retreats. And I invited my teacher back then in New York, which was Elena Brower, to come to Costa Rica thinking I would help her organize a retreat. And then she came and she was actually the one who then said, well, I think you would be an amazing teacher. Why don't you start teaching? and I'll mentor you. And I was like, what? Me? But then I did.
0: And what was it like for you when you first started teaching? Did you find that the teaching skills came to you really naturally and easily? Or did you have some moments of struggle? And if so, what did you struggle with?
1: Well, it didn't come easy, because I was really scared of like, um, yeah, speaking up, because I was my whole life supporting other people. I worked in the music business, I worked with photographers, and it was very easy to hide behind their work like if i would go to a radio station and they wouldn't like the music be like well it's not my music right and um so while i always felt like well what's really my creativity and while i had this longing of like sharing my voice i was also very scared to do so and When I started teaching, I was kind of still hiding and I would read quotes and read my notes or I read something some other teacher had said. And, um, you know, and it was really a journey. I'm now teaching 20 years, really a journey of finding my own voice. And that's why I'm really passionate to talk about it as well, because I think it's so
0: important. I think one of the themes you're bringing up here is vulnerability, is the willingness to really be seen as we are and not have the need to have a front or a persona that is, you know, kind of the best of ourselves, right? We want want people to see the best of ourselves. And sometimes as yoga teachers, we have this idea that Yoga teachers have a way that yoga teachers are supposed to be, right? They're supposed to be calm. They're supposed to be slim and fit. They're supposed to be very flexible. They're supposed to be very kind, right? So there's maybe this checklist of, Mm -hmm. here's what a yoga teacher is supposed to be. And we also recognize, hey, I don't fit that list perfectly, right? Because none of us actually do. So I'm curious, what were the stories that you had about? how to be a worthy yoga teacher. And was there a moment or a point in time where you kind of started to look at that list and be like, you know, I think this list is holding me back or it's not real.
1: Definitely. I, I remember I was hosting teacher trainings as well. So I was having all these experienced teachers come and they were just so knowledgeable about anything about anatomy and anybody would go with a question to them and they would have an answer. And I was a new teacher and I was really afraid when people would come to me and be like, Oh, my lower back really hurts. Or my knee really hurts. Or, you know, so questions that were more than like, where do I put my foot in warrior one? And uh, and I always felt like I needed to have an answer for everything or they would ask me a Sanskrit word. And I was like, oh, I don't really know the word, but I should know it, right? I should know all the stories. I should know all the sutras. And so I put a lot of pressure on myself to really know all the philosophy, know all the anatomy. And I had to completely let that go because I figured at some point that my strength is really something completely different. And I've chosen not to teach teacher trainings because I know that my strength is not to lecture eight hours about yoga philosophy and that my strength really is to spark people's lives and to inspire them and to share stories from my life and to share stories from my own experience. And to me, yoga has really been something else than anatomical progress you know that happens but to me yoga has really been a gift because it has given me different perspectives and tools to integrate into my life and so that was the shift to get away from the traditional yoga to sharing really the gifts that yoga has given to me and the wisdom the little nuggets of wisdom
0: for everyday life this theme of questioning our worthiness To take the seat of the teacher is really common, right? I don't think that it is reserved for new teachers. And now we have some language to talk about it that we didn't have, I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago, which is the the words and the languaging around imposter syndrome. And so it sounds like you had some of that imposter syndrome. And what was it that inspired you or convinced you that it was worth being vulnerable and it was worth no longer trying to copy these other teachers who you love and admire, but to actually step into your own voice.
1: Well, I think when I first started admitting that I did not know everything, it was very liberating and the world did not end and people did not stop coming to my classes just because I didn't have an answer. And it felt really good instead to share what I really love to share and to share my stories and instead to see how people were really lit up by my story and came then and instead asked me to tell them tell them more about my story and I was like a confirmation of like well I actually should really be vulnerable and not pretend to be the perfect I know it all teacher and rather really share from my heart and I think people also really connect much more to vulnerability than to the perfect yoga teacher. That's intimidating. You know, if you look on Instagram, sometimes even to me, like some of these people out there, it's like intimidating how perfect and glossy they present themselves. And, you know, I'm just different And uh, so, you know, I think I'm, I have a different approach with people. I really just want to share from my heart and connect from that soft
0: spot. For a yoga teacher who is maybe, no matter how long they've been teaching, but if they feel that they may not currently be connected or able to connect to that authentic voice and be vulnerable when they teach, what do you advise as some first steps?
1: Well, I think we all have a unique story and the gift that you have to give is in your story and you know and sometimes we hide the story because we feel like oh I should not really talk about that but the first thing I would suggest to any teacher is to really work on your story and pick those moments that actually can you know make other people relate to you connect to you and also maybe makes you a little bit vulnerable but also opens a conversation it's sometimes good to write those story or or shifts in your life write them down and really pick like maybe three four five little moments or start by thinking what are the gifts that yoga has given to you and share that and say like wow since I started yoga this has changed in my life because people are always curious to see what kind of transformation you've been through and how yoga has maybe Uh, been a tool for you and then how they can apply that into their lives. So that's the first step I would do.
0: Can you give some examples of the way that you have applied yoga in your life?
1: Yes, definitely. When I went to my first yoga classes, I remember you know, I came from Germany and, you know, the German mentality is very much about making things happen. And uh, the teacher would always be like, okay, you know, you got to soften and things will fall into place. And I was like, yeah, right. (laughs) And actually, the more yoga I was doing, the more things were falling into place for me. And Ultimately, ending in my move to Costa Rica, where I found this place that became my yoga studio and something that I could have never, ever planned like that. And that was really for me, like where I was like, wow, this really worked. The less I'm pushing, the less I'm resisting, the more I'm open to follow my intuition, to look for the signs left and right, the more things are being presented. And all I really had to do was say yes or no. And this is something I'm very passionate about sharing in my classes and with my uh, with my students.
0: So it's really for you about not trying to make things happen, but rather being sensitive and allowing. Is that? Am I hearing that right?
1: Yes, maybe a little bit of balance. First, you gotta allow and receive, and then make the things happen. You know, but with the clarity, I think. To find the clarity, you got to first be a little soft, because when we're too focused in one way, I think we we are too pushy. But then once you have the clarity, it takes a little bit of courage. You know, it's the yin and yang. It takes a little bit of courage, of core,
0: to make things happen. That makes sense. And maybe for you, the story is about the softness because of the culture you came from. Mm -hmm. was so much the opposite, that that part's already ingrained in you. And I know you and I have worked together, so I already have seen that you're not lacking in that (laughs) that (laughs) go-getter side by any means. So moving to Costa Rica, I mean, that's kind of a dream, right, for so many people. I'd love to hear a little bit about that story. How did that come about? Well, the
1: first time I went in 1991, And I was still living in Germany and I went on vacation and I always had this dream of living under the palm trees in the sunshine. I always felt like a cliche. But when I I went there the first time, we stayed in this tiny, tiny hotel and it belonged to a German woman. And uh, she was basically like representing my dream. And, you know, and it still felt like, wow, she's living my dream and it's not for me. But I know that a seed was planted, you know, how there's always these little threads in your life. And so I, I never forget that picture of her living my dream. And I went back to Germany and, you know, a couple of years later, I decided then to move to L.A. because I wanted to be in the sun and under the palm trees. And I still felt I needed to be in the city. Yeah. And then things started to happen with the yoga and then I decided to move to New York. and at some point, a friend of mine said, well, let's meet in Costa Rica. And I was like, okay, it's time to go back. And that was in 2000. And basically, I had already met some people in 1991. And I knew they had opened a hotel. And so I, I went back. And my friend actually quit two days before. And she was like, Oh, I'm actually going to Panama. So I ended up going all by myself and uh, meeting all these people and then eventually falling in love with the owner of a hotel. And that was very funny because I'm sure if my friend, again, if my friend would have come with me, everything would have been different. So, you know, another sign of like, I was so upset with her, but luckily she didn't come. And so I started hanging out with this guy. And then like shortly before I went back to New York, we were falling in love and it was like, oh, okay, let's see. And uh, and then I started going back and forth between New York and Costa Rica that was in the year 2001 and my plan was not really to move there but then September 11 happened and there was another push of like okay clearly my life in New York is not functioning anymore And so I made the jump and then Elena came with her retreat and that was in November. So 20 years ago, so crazy. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and then already told the story and then she encouraged me to basically start teaching and there was no yoga back then. And yeah, it was wonderful. And I just was like, okay, I have nothing else to do. I might as well start doing what I love to do and share yoga.
0: And that really is a story of saying yes, because... When your friend dropped out of the trip, you could have been like, well, fine, I'm not going either. I don't want to go alone. You know, like you could have said no, but instead you said, okay, I'm just going to see what there is for me. So now you've been in Costa Rica 20 years. How have things shifted for you? How have things changed for you over this last 20 years? Like what was it like teaching in the beginning, but then mostly what's the journey been and what does your teaching look like now?
1: Well, personally I was Back then, an Anusara inspired teacher, and um, there was a big Anusara community. So the first places in Costa Rica were all connected to the Anusara community, and we were very excited to meet. and It was really a sense of community because there was not that much yoga happening in Costa Rica. And in my community, people thought that I was crazy to teach yoga because it was all more about party and these kind of things. In the last twenty years, it's just been incredible the expansion and um, you know now there's yoga in every corner and it's really wonderful and Costa Rica has become one of the top destinations for yoga and yoga retreats and yoga teacher trainings and in a way I think that's great because it's more accessible to everyone but what I miss is the sense of community and the quality or the level of teaching and training that used to be 20 years ago, you know, when we really any teacher would come to Costa Rica to teach a workshop, and all of us, we would go to San Jose and drive five hours to be there and learn and study, you know. So now there's like, yeah, trainings and workshops in every corner, but it feels a little more wishy washy. And as far as my personal teaching or practice, it has shifted for sure from a more vinyasa, stronger practice to really. The practice of softening and more vulnerability more yin yoga more allowing and really less inversions and crazy poses (laughs) (laughs) handstands are not so popular anymore in my classes and uh, yeah to really more how can i integrate yoga into daily life i think that is so important to really ask that question you know how can how do I really feel if the yoga is working? You know, it doesn't really depend on bringing the foot behind the head. You know, it's really about, yeah, what kind of a person am I in my relationships? How do I show up and what do I have to share and how do I, you know, deal with my fears? And so I'm I'm much more focused on those areas. How can I find stillness and yeah, hold space for others to experience that too?
0: So I'm curious about your experience during teacher training, but what was it like for you in teacher training? And if you could wave a magic wand and influence other teacher trainings, like teacher trainings around the world, what would you change or what would you focus on?
1: Community. Because I think, especially now with all these programs of like Three weeks in Costa Rica, three weeks in Bali, people come from everywhere, and they're not connected necessarily to a studio, so they do this training, they used to be four weeks, now they're three weeks, now they're even online completely, and then what? Then you're a new teacher, you're not connected to any mentoring, and uh, that's something I see all the time and that I think is really something I appreciated so much in my training. Like I said before, we were so excited to learn more and to grow. And so I, if I could wave the wand, definitely I would love to create some kind of community where new teachers can come together and really, yeah, that could be something online and really share experiences and ask questions and get encouraged to try teaching and yeah, to just have that experience of community, because to me, yoga is community. You know, you're doing such an amazing job in creating that community,
0: you know. I'm glad to hear you say that because I especially like what you're saying about this ongoing experience past the the time of the teacher training, because I agree with you, three weeks certainly is not enough time to absorb (laughs) enough information, even information, right? We talked in the beginning about how being a great yoga teacher is not just about information, but you need some information and three weeks is just not enough time. And even a year, even if you took a longer training spread out over a year, it's not enough time. And we do need these containers to grow within, to have mirrors, to have other people reflecting our experience back to us and to encourage us And to also tell us when we might be going a little off track, right? So that's why, that's part of why I created the Impact Club is to have that space. You know, it it doesn't matter if you just graduated from a teacher training, or if it was five years ago, or 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, we are losing that sense of community that you were talking about. And, or maybe we're not losing it, it's transforming. And right now, what is the most powerful format is online. And I know that a lot of us are a bit tired of being online all the time. I think we need to find some balance with it, just like you were saying in the beginning about the the listening and the saying yes, and the also making a plan and being a go-getter. We also need to have some balance between technology and the you know be mindful like I would rather spend my computer time connecting with humans live than like scrolling on social media
1: absolutely and I think that is also probably one of the biggest challenges for new teachers I can imagine because they Did the training and they want to make money so they go to hotels or places who just offer yoga classes but there's no mentoring and they have this pressure of like okay now I need to be perfect because you know I need to like show everything be there for everybody and especially in I see that a lot in Costa Rica. And then they are like, you know, with everyday changing people, it's not even the people are like not even a community. And there's like the beginner and there's the advanced yogi that show up and these new teachers are there without any guidance. And I mean, it's it's really sad that it, you know, that it has come to that place and how can we create some kind of support for them? That's the vulnerability again. So how how can we create a space for for those people to have yeah, to, to feel safe, to share, gosh, I was really scared to do this. Or I was, had this experience when, with a client, a student, and like, what do I do?
0: Well, I think that this comes full circle to where we started the conversation about, you know, putting the side of yourself forward that is not the whole picture. And there's still a balance there, right? You don't want to break down in tears in front of your students every time you teach because, that wouldn't be fair to your students, right? There's, there's a balance with being able to hold the seat of the teacher to be vulnerable and be a leader at the same time. But I think social media is really makes it much more challenging because when you and I started teaching, that wasn't a component, that was not an expectation. There was just nothing about social media and being a yoga teacher at the same time. Like this is a really new phenomenon. And I talked to a lot of brand new teachers who feel like the first thing I have to do as a yoga teacher is build my social media following. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like so <laughs> backwards. No, it, first of all, it's really hard because you don't have a message yet. You don't have clarity around what you stand for as a teacher because that takes time to develop. And you can't create a following Right. You can get followers, but those aren't the types of deep connections of people who are actually going to take the time to attend your classes. So I'm just curious because I know that you still are connected in Europe and I've mostly heard this from yoga teachers in Europe that an Instagram following is like a prerequisite for getting a studio job. Have you heard this at all?
1: I have not heard that. But, you okay. know, but I'm not really I'm I for me also, because I feel like I'm I have created my own thing in Costa Rica that luckily I'm not in this world of like, you know, I have friends who have studios in Hamburg, for example, where I'm here now and I can see, oh, wow, things are different here. But I've never heard them say anything like that. But I really can't speak for that also because I really you know in my studio you don't if you come to teach for me that's the least I require from you (laughs) but yeah maybe it would make me sad though if that's really true if really that's what people require I mean because that look at that pressure also for new teachers not only do you have to figure out how you're gonna you know start making it a career you have to like make an email list. You have to present yourself on social media. You have to run your business. You have to figure out how you present yourself online. It's like, oh my gosh, it's so overwhelming.
0: Yeah. And that's why I tell new teachers whenever I can, don't try to make a career of it the first couple of years that you're teaching. Give yourself that space to be a beginning teacher and to teach for the joy of it so that Otherwise, you'll lose the joy. You'll lose the joy. If you try to do too much at once and you try to be everything all at once, it's going to rob you of your connection to why you started teaching in the first place.
1: And it'll rob you of your personal practice, which is the source of all your teaching. And there's a circle, you know, again, because we spend so much time then focusing on being the teacher that our own personal joy of our own practice. That's, that's the only thing I remember also when I started teaching is like taking a class was never the same again because any class be like, oh, that was a good sequence. Oh, that was a nice quote. And it's like already challenging not to lose your personal practice and the innocence of a student To And then again, connect to your students. And I think, you know, that's with like finding your voice is also like finding your practice, finding your way your speed your yeah what yoga is for you the gift in the yoga and from that experience you can draw for your teaching and not from what you think it should look like or what people ask you to do so yeah and you're doing a really good job in like making that clear always in your beautiful program so really
0: Well, thank you. I only share the messages that I need to hear myself, basically. (laughs) (laughs) We all do. (laughs) So one of the things that for me has been really difficult and really important is carving out time where I'm not planning classes, where I'm not in the role of teacher. And I've gotten a lot better over the years of being able to take people's classes and not kind of do that running critique of like, oh, I want to keep that. Ooh, I would have done that differently or whatever it is. And to really just be present and, and use the voice of the teacher and the structure of the teacher as an invitation into the moment and who I am and what I am in that moment, which is not a teacher right? If you're in a yoga class, there's nothing wrong with being like, Ooh, I want to keep that, right? That's fine. But it's taking you out of your practice because your practice is being in your body and being the student in that moment. And I think it's easier to develop that when there isn't an external teacher teaching you. That's why I'm a huge fan of, I mean, I'm also a huge fan of taking classes, but I'm a huge fan of having some home practice that is self-guided because you really have to kind of open up and say, what do I need right now? Right? And and not planning, not, not planning your class and practicing what you're gonna teach your students, but literally what do I need in this moment? That is easier said than done, but really important. We have a, a little visitor. <laughs> Come here Bonnie. That's cute. I don't know how she got in,
1: but. This is Bonnie. She found her way. I'm a cat lover. She probably felt it. She probably did. (laughs) She was like, oh, there's a cat lover.
0: So before we wrap up Dagmar, I would love to hear if there's any final message that you want to share with yoga teachers or something that we've already talked about that you think is really important and you want to emphasize.
1: Yeah, basically what I said before, like don't be afraid to be you and trust that people will connect more with you if you share your story with vulnerability and uh, if you find the gift in your story and don't keep yourself small, don't hide behind other people and just you know reach out for support um, you know, I think also it's really good to have maybe one or two mentors. There was a time also when I was hosting these retreats and I was like wanting to do it all and I did the Kundalini retreat and the Ayanga retreat and it just left me completely confused and like, what do I actually want to do? So my advice is really stick to one or two people that are inspiring to you, that are your mentors, but really, really find your way, find your voice, trust that that is really your power and the success of your teaching.
0: And if listeners want to find out more about you, want to find out more about your work, where, they, where should they look?
1: Dagmashbrenberg.com. And this is more about my programs. I also offer um, a mentorship program. And uh, online classes, etc. And I'm on Instagram as well under Montezuma Yoga. So you can find me there and reach out and connect. I'm I'm all about connection and community, so feel
0: free. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Dagmar.
1: Thank you so much, Madur. It was a pleasure.
0: I think the part of that conversation that I really appreciated the most was when Dagmar was describing how when she was a newer teacher, she assumed that she needed to have the same skill set as the teachers that she really loved and admired. And the insight that really allowed her to step into her potential as a teacher was realizing that she could appreciate a teacher without emulating them. For me, this speaks back to that theme of finding balance between the seeming opposites of logic and intuition effort, and ease. When you first decide to become a teacher, it's actually really helpful to follow an external structure set up by your teachers. However, in order for your teaching to feel fulfilling and authentic over the long term, you eventually need to make some choices about which pieces of that structure you're going to keep and which just aren't right for you. And the longer you teach, the more your learned knowledge can actually take a back seat to support your intuition as a teacher. There's a book I really love by a psychological researcher named Daniel Kahneman that explains how the two ways of knowing, logic, and intuition interact. And the book is called Thinking Fast and Slow. In the book, he weaves this metaphor of two brains, although in reality, both brains coexist inseparably and intertwined. The slow brain, is online when you learn new information, when you're thinking through different options, and when you're deliberately practicing a new skill. The fast brain dominates when you perform skills that you've mastered, when you read emotional subtleties, when you estimate measurements, and when you create something brand new. So the fast brain is extremely intuitive and brilliant, but it's also extremely prone to errors. While the slow brain is more reliable, but it tires very quickly. And so it's kind of, I don't want to call it lazy, but it's reluctant to come on board. And as humans, we tend to over rely on the fast brain um, by estimating things a lot. So if you're interested in the book, Kahneman describes a ton of logical er- errors that humans tend to fall into When they use their so-called fast brain, what I heard in Dagmar's message today was a story about the pain of living in a culture that overvalues the abilities of the slow brain, a life focused entirely on deliberate reasoning as a life where you second guess every decision and you never experience the joy of ease and flow. Of course, in reality, no life is entirely free from fast brain thinking, but I'm thinking that when that when intuition isn't valued, we're more likely to ignore and suppress the intuitions and the creative leaps that could arise. In my own courses, a lot of the pre-recorded content is the logic part, and that's the step-by-step process. But the reason I teach most of my courses with a live component is that you can't pre-record the dynamic back and forth collaboration of the fast brain connection that happens in a live setting. And this is the part of teaching that I frankly love the most. It's getting to listen deeply to a human, another human, who's really sharing in their own way their desires, their goals, their vision, and helping them tap into their inner knowing. A big part of my approach when doing this is to ask a lot of questions. And frequently the person I'm working with will come to their own conclusions just by answering my questions. So I'm not like leading them anywhere. I'm allowing them, I'm supporting them to lead themselves. I get to hold space for what they already know and to allow that inner knowing to bubble up to the surface. So those questions that I ask are another example of fast brain thinking. Because in the moment I couldn't tell you where the questions come from. I'm not thinking through them, but I do know that they're informed by slow brain work I've done in the past, such as my one-on-one sessions, my studies, reading books, and all kinds of life experiences. Usually we will have one type of thinking that comes more naturally than the other. And if you notice that that's true for you, then deliberately cultivating the other type can make a huge difference in your ability to feel like you are living a life of purpose and of impact. So here's some clues. If you get easily frustrated, bored with details, are extremely creative and willing to take risks, you might be fast brain dominant. If you're slow moving, detail oriented, logical, and risk averse, you might be more slow brain dominant. Now, just to be accurate, which is a slow brain skill, the description of these fast and slow brain tendencies are mental models. Mental models are more on the fast brain side of the spectrum because they're oversimplified shortcuts to understanding different topics. If some of this isn't quite making sense to you, I highly recommend getting the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. What I'm trying to say is I hope that this description of fast and slow brain thinking is useful to you, but I encourage you not to overthink or overanalyze it if you have that tendency. Just use it in any way that you find it helpful, and recognize that it has limitations too. It is uh, the map and not the territory. All right, friend, that's what I have for you this week. As always, thank you so much for listening, and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.